Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, this week in politics, it's all about bullying and strawberries. And those are probably the most interesting things going on anywhere. So we've got Michael Packey, the National Political Editor for Macquarie Media, on those tortured topics and more. On markets, the main event was probably the US 10-year bond yield going above 3%, and we've got two people talking about that. Kyle Rodder, market analyst at IG, and Susan Buckley, who runs the bond portfolio at QIC. Su Lin Ong, Managing Director and Chief Economist and Head of Australian Research at RBC Capital Markets, is getting a bit exasperated about the trade war. And Supratim Adhikari, Technology Editor at The Australian, is deep in 5G, and he explains why we should care about that. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. And now to tell us about what's going on in politics, I'm joined by Michael Packey, the National Political Editor for Macquarie Media. Well, Michael, uh, it's a month into um, um, Scott Morrison's Prime Ministership and uh, as always with politics, it's never he's never short of topics and uh, now we've got all sorts of things going on, including strawberry tampering and so on. But I mean, how do you think... How do you think he's going? Look, I think that Scott Morrison has had a pretty good start to his time uh, in uh, the top job. And look, he's had to put out a fair few bushfires. There's no doubt about that. And I actually don't think he's uh, put out these bushfires as yet. But on the whole, I think if we're looking at as a as a broad brush, I think that uh, he's done okay. I think he's handled question time pretty well. He's getting out in the media pretty early on in the day pretty much every day, trying to talk uh, about uh, policy issues and try and steer the conversation away from the internal problems that uh, the Liberal Party is uh, grappling with. I think he's done well on uh, that front. There's no doubt he's still dealing with this issue of uh, bullying claims within the Liberal Party. He's dealing with uh, these issues that uh, Peter Dutton may be not eligible to sit in Parliament. And so he's got that sort of stuff that he has to contend with. But on the whole, I think uh, one month into the job, not too bad. Where do you think the bullying um, controversy is heading? Look, I think that when it comes to uh, the bullying controversy, I, I, I think that Scott Morrison and the Liberal Party more generally need to uh, come out with some sort of a, a policy framework of how they're dealing with it. Or otherwise, I just think that uh, the issue is going to continue bobbing up at uh, various points in time. Uh, so you, last week, obviously, it really reached a crescendo when you had people like uh, Julie Bishop, the former foreign minister, really coming out and saying that uh, bullying does exist and and does need to be dealt with. This week, you've had these claims by Anne Sudmalis, the New South Wales MP, who claims that she's not recontesting her seat of Gilmore, which is a marginal seat, because she's been bullied by people within her local branches. So I do think that uh, the government and the Prime Minister need to come out with some sort of clear definition of what they're doing, clear, uh, a clear policy of how they're handling uh, the issues. At the moment, all Scott Morrison has said, oh, we're dealing with this internally. Well, I think that uh, they're going to have to start dealing with it a bit externally and explain to people that uh, they are dealing with these bullying claims and they are trying to encourage more women uh, to uh, 
you know, stand for uh, the Liberal Party in pre-selection because you've got some of these women saying that the reason that they are deciding to quit and not recontest uh, the next election is because they just simply can't stand the bullying and intimidation that goes on and which they feel is being swept under the carpet. So I think that at a federal level, so the federal president of uh, the Liberal Party, Nick Greiner, and I think the Prime Minister, to give it a bit more gravitas, need to come out and say how they are dealing with this issue at a very much a practical level. But the thing that they're ruling out, it would seem, is quotas for the simple reason mm. that that is a Labor Party word, quotas. That's right. The Labor Party does, and they're not going to do it for that reason, but they but what, they have to do something, don't they? Oh, look, at Absolutely, and it's actually quite funny when I saw this that uh, the uh, Liberal Party won't uh, doesn't want to use the word quotas because they believe that uh, that word has been tarnished uh, by the Labor Party. So they've got to come up with some other sort of solution to try and uh, get w more women uh, into Parliament. You had uh, Kelly O'Dwyer, the Federal Minister for Women, coming out uh, this week suggesting that uh, policies do need to be put in place that can encourage women to uh, stand uh, for uh, politics. And maybe uh, a few more safer Liberal seats uh, are given to uh, women uh, than ones they've really got to uh, fight for. Um, but I don't know if that would uh, really go down well. Some people might say that whoever is uh, pre-selected for any of these seats should be pre-selected on merit. And of course we know that uh, the Prime Minister wanted a female candidate to contest the seat of uh, Wentworth, which was uh, vacated by Malcolm Turnbull after he quit uh, politics. But uh, that didn't go to a woman. That seat went to Dave Sharma, a very capable uh, candidate, but uh, a male candidate, and that's because some of these uh, Liberal Party branches don't want to be told who they should be pre-selecting to uh, represent the party at a local level. But uh, there's no doubt they do got to come up with some sort of policy that will encourage more women uh, to stand, and uh, more women are supposed to feel encouraged to stand, uh, That uh, and that once they do, once they do put their hand up, that they will be given enough support. Uh, to uh, basically contest that seat and potentially win that seat for the party. And what about Peter Dutton? I mean, where, where do things stand right now with him? Look, it's quite interesting with uh, the Peter Dutton issue. I know that uh, Labor and the Greens do want to move motions of no confidence in uh, Peter Dutton uh, over two very separate issues. The first one over some of the visa decisions that he made in 2015. Did he know uh, the people that he was uh, granting visas to to ensure that these uh, people weren't deported? So there was there are those questions that uh, uh, Peter Dutton needs to uh, answer. And then there's this very separate issue about whether or not uh, Peter Dutton is actually eligible to sit in Parliament. And that's because he has a financial interest in two Brisbane childcare centres. And because these childcare centres receive a level of taxpayer funding, that could put him in breach of the Constitution. Now, Peter Dutton and uh, the Prime Minister say that uh, he's done nothing wrong, that uh, Peter Dutton is saying that his visa decisions uh, are above board and that when he did intervene in the visa decisions that he did, uh, he did so for, quote, common sense reasons. And it's just simply Labor and the Greens that are conducting a witch hunt against him. And as for the eligibility, whether or not he's eligible to sit in Parliament, that he's not in breach of the Constitution, he claims that uh, any money that his childcare centres uh, receive uh, basically go back to parents as subsidies, that the childcare centres themselves do not keep any taxpayer funds. So he claims he's also got a body of legal advice suggesting that everything is above board uh, on this level. But look, 
I don't think, Alan, that this is about uh, trying to push uh, Peter Dutton out of a, out of Parliament uh, before this term ends. I think this is all about damaging him when he recontests the next election. So the Labor Party and uh, their organisations such as Get Up that do back uh, the Labor Party in, when uh, they're on the ground campaigning against Peter Dutton, they can, they've got things that they can point to uh, to try and uh, tarnish Peter Dutton's brand at a ground level, at a local level, to try and ensure that uh, he's not uh, re-elected next time around. And we've got to keep in mind, he only holds his uh, Brisbane seat of uh, Dixon by around 1%. So the chance that he may not win it again uh, is pretty high. Now, that makes sense, Michael. Just on the um, on the subject of strawberries, I note that the Labor Party has said that uh, Scott Morrison is overreacting by putting 15-year jail terms on uh, food tampering. Do, um is this actually turning into a political issue, do you think, or not? Oh, look, I, I, it's turning to a little bit of a political issue, but I think that Labor's got to be careful here. Um, I think that this is a story that is affecting a lot of people. We are starting to see strawberry farmers uh, having to kill crops, lay off workers, dump tonnes and tonnes of fruit. So it is affecting people uh, on uh, the ground. I think that uh, the... Uh, the announcement that uh, uh, penalties for food tampering, uh, jail terms for food tampering, will uh, be increased to uh, 15 years is probably a good thing. And it shows that uh, Scott Morrison knows that he's got to react on this issue because people are starting to uh, struggle and that they know they need to send a strong message to those that are playing these sorts of uh, dangerous games, send a strong message to offenders. So if uh, Labor is starting to say that uh, the government is uh, trying to uh, play politics here or, or, the, or, or the laws that it's trying to introduce that could be uh, too tough, I think this could backfire. I think that uh, most people would agree that when it comes to uh, food tampering especially, uh, you need to uh, have tough sentences and you do need to uh, strengthen laws and I think everyone would agree with that. Now, to tell us what's going on in the markets, here's Kyle Rodder, analyst at IG Markets. Well, Kyle, uh, the trade war obviously went up a uh, notch this week with uh, from tr- President yes. Trump, but the market reaction was relatively muted and, in fact, um, the, you know, the, the, it bounced back. So uh, what's your sense mm-hmm. of what's going on? Well, it was an interesting one. So when the news actually dropped and um, true to, you know, US President Trump's form, he left uh, the market waiting a little bit longer than he'd, uh, than he'd forecast. When the news came out, it was probably a little bit of a shock initially, um, just because I think over the course of probably two or three days towards the, end of the back end of last week, markets were pricing in that um, tariffs were coming at about 10% rather than 25%. Um, and of course, that's uh, $200 billion worth of um, goods going into to the US, Chinese goods going into the US. Now, the initial reaction was one of a little bit of shock because uh, the detail there was that the uh, you know initially on the September 24th um, the, the the 10% will be implemented, but that will be up to the start of next year um, if uh, the Chinese don't cooperate to to the 25% flag. So the initial reaction was actually quite a, an aggressive sell-off, and that that manifested in futures markets. Now, I think the key variable um, throughout this is not so much what the Trump 
administration or the US would do because it's sort of built in that we understand that they're uh, you know fairly protectionist in in, in their attitude um, and their in, in their beliefs just in general. Um, but the real key is around what the Chinese response was going to be. So throughout the day, uh, it was sort of determined that the Chinese have taken a rather diplomatic line to these negotiations. They spoke up a lot of uh, multilateralism like they have in the past, um, this sort of internationalist perspective that they want to cooperate, come to the trade table in the, in a fashion that uh, promotes you know, inclusivity and, and um, again, global trade um, and, uh, you know, talks down um, the, the, the need for trade wars. And as a result, that kind of diplomatic tone, I think, reassured traders that we weren't going to get an escalation out of this. Um, so we knew that the, the U.S. would be quite aggressive. The Chinese have been quite reserved in their response. Uh, and then as a result, when, when that, um, you know, the, the response by the Chinese was announced, uh, which was already been flagged for several months, which is that they'll slap on uh, tariffs worth about $60 billion, US dollars. Um, by that stage, everything's been priced in and that relief rally set in. So it's a, a bit of a complicated narrative, but that's how it sort of played out. And as a result, over the last couple of days, we've seen a list across commodity markets and equity markets, which have obviously uh, sold off quite aggressively up until that point in time. Yeah, but the, but the equity markets have been recovering the last couple of days. No, yeah, exactly. So um, I'll clarify that um, just in terms of leading up to that particular event, yeah. um, commodities had come off. Um, equity markets have, had taken a bit of a tumble too. So it was subsequent to that news where the Chinese, um, yeah, again, struck a tone that was far more diplomatic than uh, may have been um, expected because there was kind of a concerns around, particularly off the back of a Wall Street Journal article uh, released uh, only a week or two ago that if tariffs were implemented, the Chinese would just completely walk away, walk away from trade talks now. Um, they didn't, in practice, go ahead with that. Um, and then when that did occur, that's when we saw that uh, that rally across equities, particularly obviously in Chinese indices, which are performing the best, working off, of, off the lowest base, floated through obviously to the to an extent to the ASX. But um, you know the big impacts obviously been um, through you know a bit of a bounce in European markets too, and and the US has has steadied a little bit as well. Yeah, um, the other thing that's happened this week is that the ten year bond yield in the US went back about three percent, and looks like it's staying there for the time being. So uh, what impact is that having on the markets, Kyle? Well, it looks so far that it might be a little bit of a drag. Um, we only have to cast our sort of uh, eyes back seven or eight months where um, the last market correction that we saw in, in January, February was on the back of the fact that we thought yields, Treasury yields were going to climb at a much uh, faster rate than expected um, and take some gas out of um, out of the equity market. So we're reaching pretty close to what it is effectively now on, you know, saying using US 10 years as a, as a benchmark, um, a year-to-date high. Um, so we've had this sort of relief rally over the last two or three days, but perhaps over the last 12 hours or so, um, as markets are actually starting to factor in that the US Federal Reserve have the impetus to, to hike rates at the rate that they potentially want to. Now, um, September's been fully priced in for the market for some time. December now is sitting at about 80% priced in by interest rate traders. Uh, but the curious thing is we're starting to creep towards those two hikes for 2019, which up until only about a month ago was was effectively non-existent, was very, very negligible. So traders are starting to buy into the uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve's rhetoric around uh, rates. They think that, you know, even off the back of, you know, UK CPI data last night, that maybe rates might even increase, um, say, into the medium term, um, you know, in other geographies across the world as well. Um, it, it's starting to, 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 to raise a question that perhaps, uh, you know, this is going to start transferring across into, into yield fairly quickly. 
um, starting, you know, obviously attracting, uh, you know, flows of funds into into those assets instead, and that would obviously naturally um, pull um, pull down the uh, the equity space. So I think in the ASX today we're starting to see that story play out. And I think structurally speaking, you, know, you strip out the trade war and the geopolitics, that's probably going to be the biggest factor of play because that's really what's underpinning our witness in emerging markets, um, but also you know concerns of you know issues around uh, you know liquidity, funding costs, and all these things that uh, that will start playing into to consumers as well. And now to look further into US bond yields going above 3%, here's Susan Buckley, Managing Director of Global Liquid Strategies at QIC, where she manages their bond portfolio. What's going on in the um, uh, US bond market? Why has it gone back to 3% and what do you think will happen now? Yeah, the US uh, bond market has been selling off or interest rates have been rising for over a year or, or 18 months because the US economy has been performing extremely strongly. Inflation is starting to move higher and wages growth is coming through. So basically the US economy is outperforming um, most other economies uh, in the globe. So it's probably not a surprise that we've had this almost gradual move from a low of 1.5% in the US 10-year rate right through to 3% where we are today. So we're at a very interesting juncture. Um, you know, we, we're we nearing the high in in um, US bond yields uh, for for a number of years. So if we do, we, we do think eventually we'll break through this 3% uh, sort of psychological level and head towards sort of 3.5%, uh, perhaps sort of sometime middle of next year. So we're, we're on a gradual upward path in, in interest rates, which also reflects monetary policy being tightened in the US, where we've had interest rates go from basically zero up towards 2% uh, in, in terms of a federal US federal funds reserve rate. Doesn't that mean that bonds are, are not a very good investment at the moment because um, as interest rates rise, the capital value falls? Over shorter term periods, that's certainly the case. Um, so... You know, but it, over more medium term, as we see these interest rates rise, there will be good opportunities uh, for for bond investors to take advantage of of these high vi- higher yields. But you're right, we we would like to see sort of the global repricing of yields. You've still got probably a quarter of the developed market bond yields still trading at a negative yield, mostly in Europe and Japan we've got negative or zero interest rates. So uh, we probably expect there will be further rises in, in global yields over the next year. Uh, so in that context, probably want to keep your your exposure to interest rates um, shorter in a maturity sense um, through this period of upward adjustment in interest rates. So is that why you're looking at Chinese bonds? Are they, do they provide an alternative um are you getting firstly are you getting a yield advantage in china with chinese bonds or and um is there some kind of sense that perhaps yields aren't rising as much there so that um the dangers the problems with investing in bonds aren't as as great in china yeah no that's um some of the reasons we're looking at china we've certainly been studying china for many years because their economy is just so important to global growth and inflation outlooks uh, and particularly important for Australia. But also uh, the Chinese bond market, I guess the flip side of of their debt growth over the last decade, 
is now uh, verging on the second largest bond market in the world, uh, now almost surpassing Japan, uh, just behind the US. And the other thing is that the authorities over many years and even more uh, sort of rapidly in recent years have been wanting to open up their bond market. So they've only got less than 3% of foreign investment in their bond market because it's been very difficult to access Chinese uh, yields. Um, but there's been some innovations over the last year or two which allows um, foreigners to access that bond market more easily. And as you say, uh, there are higher yields on offer in China versus some other global markets such as Europe and Japan. And it does offer um, another opportunity for us to diversify our global bond exposure. So how much higher are the yields in China? Uh, just um, on that point about diversification, probably if we go back a year ago, Chinese rates were sort of four, four and a half um, percent in terms of a government yield, and then they've fallen over the last year probably more towards sort of three, three and a half. Um, so they're still still sort of above the US and very um, attractive sort of in a, in a global sense. But while Chinese interest rates have been falling, which is which is been a capital gain for those investors exposed. US interest rates have been rising. Um, so Chinese authorities have been, after tightening policy in 2017, have so far this year been loosening policy, while the US has been tightening policy. So um, that's been a good diversifier in a, in a return-seeking sense for an investor. But also overall, what we're particularly interested in is, is also the corporate bond market which um, is also uh, going to offer sort of higher yields, sort of more in the range of 1%, 2 or 3% over a government or sovereign Chinese yield. So then you're looking at yields sort of up towards sort of 55 or 6%. Yeah, but how risky are they? <laughs> yes, you certainly need to understand and be uh, uh, doing your due diligence on all, all the risks uh, in in any corporate bond market, and particularly the the China credit market, so it is it is a still um, uh, an immature market, if you like. Um, the overall bond market is still opening up, but also um, the corporate market is going through rapid rapid change. They just experienced their first default in 2014, where you know the corporate markets around in the around Europe and the US are very very much more mature. Um, the Chinese corporate bond market is now um, just starting to deal with the default process. Uh, so this year could be the highest default experience in that market. We actually think that's that's a good thing because it's now starting to function more like um, a developed market where the, the corporate bond market is, is clearly, uh, there's a lot of state-owned entities uh, which maybe historically that meant they were guaranteed, but that's not necessarily the case today. And now to talk about RBA Minutes, trade wars and the Australian dollar, here's Sue Lin Ong, Head of Research at RBC Capital Markets in Australia. Well, Sue Lin, uh, anything in the... Reserve Bank minutes this week that uh, surprised you? 
Um, not especially. I mean, they stuck to a number of familiar themes. Um, I think very much uh, reinforcing their base case view that growth in Australia will be above trend, um, that will continue to underpin a firmer labour market as we march towards full employment, that ultimately uh, lifting wages and inflation uh, over the medium term. So that's very much their, their key narrative. It's been captured in their forecasts. Um, and so those thematics came through fairly clearly. I think that there's a couple of things to be mindful of. The minutes are quite dated. And so the reference in the minutes to some material risk to the, the broader global outlook from rising global trade tensions, I think is, is quite noteworthy. Um, Obviously, the minutes predate the events of this week, but um, it tells you very much that board members are thinking about uh, rising trade tensions and what that may mean for not just global growth, but obviously Australia specifically. Um, and the minutes are also a little bit out of date, given that uh, they don't take into account um, the recent hikes by three of the four majors, um, which, which as well, I think, um, adds to, to the case for the bank to sit on hold. So, what do you um, think of the of uh, what, what do you think of the trade tensions going on? Uh, look, I think that um, they've definitely stepped up a notch given the developments this week. Um, you know, with uh, the US obviously imposing an additional um, round of, of tariffs on 200 billion worth of goods, some retaliation from the Chinese. Um, you know, and and the risk that it provokes, you know, further um, retaliation from the US. I mean, this tit for tat um, has clearly uh, ramped up and looks like it will continue and be fairly prolonged. I think, um, you know, for, for markets, um, the key is really what it means ultimately for not just growth, but obviously inflation as well. And that's probably the first channel of transmission here. Um, what that means then for asset markets and central banking policy. So it, it definitely has, has um, you know, taken another step higher um, and has added greater uncertainty to the global outlook. Um, and that's really, I think, what markets are grappling with at the moment. The reaction so far from markets is um, pretty relaxed, I've got to say. We're a bit surprised by that. Um, you know, if you look at, at um, what asset markets have done in the last 48 hours, the, the whole risk complex is fairly well supported. Um, global yields are higher, uh, equity markets are firmer, emerging markets um, are stronger. Um, it's a classic risk-on type um, response, which is a little surprising given what's happened and um, the degree of uncertainty. Now, I think in part... Um, it's been helped by the fact that the Chinese re retaliation was pretty modest, um, that China came out pretty quickly and said they wouldn't devalue and use that as a bit of a, a weapon, um, and that they were prepared to support their economy um, via largely you know, fiscal stimulus. So that, I think, seems to be soothing markets a little, at least for now. At least for now. Do you think at some point the markets will get uh, worried if it keeps going as it is i mean uh, i've seen yeah, a few i've seen I, I a, i've seen a few predictions of uh, volatility as a as a result of this which we're not seeing yet yeah yeah absolutely um and i think that uh really you know we know at the end of the day um this can't bode well for um really for global growth um and you know it comes at a time as well where china is already slowing 
Um, and, and so in that context where China's slowing, um, global growth is firm, but it's less synchronized and broad-based than it was three to six months ago, um, this is an added risk that doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon. So I would be cautious about the, the reaction we've seen in markets this week. I think um, it doesn't bode particularly well uh, over the medium term. Um, this continued escalation and, and dragging out of uh, rising protectionism. Um, you know, like I said, the first order of transmission is more than likely going to be higher prices um, in the US. And, and uh, you know, that has implications clearly for what the Fed may do, for uh, asset markets, for bond yields, which are, you know, on the march as well. So um, we'll see what happens, but I, I think um, we would be cautious. Going the, the other thing worth the, the other thing just briefly worth talking about is the Australian dollar. Now, when it went below seventy one, um, I think a couple of weeks ago, I, I expected it to just keep mm-hmm. going and break through seventy and get into the sixties for the first time in a while. But um, it's now back up into the, in the mid seventy twos. So, what what do you think is going on there? Yeah, it's proved remarkably resilient, I think. I think it's a combination of a number of factors. Um, We know the market is positioned short. There's a bit of a squeeze going on at the moment, and and, um, that's lent some support to the currency and has stopped it going lower. Um, The second, I think, is really some of the the fairly comforting words that have come out of um, the Chinese authorities, Um, you know, their, their view that they will not devalue um, or at least a value substantially um, to support the economy. That's definitely lent support to the Aussie dollar. Um, it moved pretty quickly higher on those comments when they hit the screens this week. Um, the fact that China continues to support its economy and confirm that it would do so, um, you know, either via fiscal stimulus or, or other measures, um, and, and that I think probably bodes well um, for the currency as well. Um, and I think, look, there may be a bit of a view that with, with all these trade tensions that um, if China um, does slow and it, and it does um, undertake some fiscal stimulus, ultimately that's reasonably beneficial for Australia and Australian exports. And so the currency, I think, has had a little bit of support from positioning um, some you know, fairly soothing Chinese comments around devaluation and, and um, the fact that they will absolutely support their economy by whatever means. Now I'm joined by Super Tim Adhikari, the technology editor of The Australian, to talk about 5G. Well, Super Tim, you're in the middle of the uh, Telstra two-day technology conference. Um, to what extent is it all about 5G? Is that what everyone's talking about? Well, Alan, absolutely. 5G really is the hot topic at the moment. And, and, and you know, in, in a sense, it's the next big evolutionary step, you know, the big step change when it comes to the entire telecoms industry. So that's just not the telcos like Telstra, but also, you know, the equipment makers like Nokia and Ericsson. So uh, understandably, yeah, absolutely, everyone is talking about 5G and what it actually means um, for, the, for the general market. So uh, um, I think uh, Telstra CEO Andy Penn talked about it in his address yesterday, as you reported. Um, so when, uh, how far down the track is Telstra and when will they be rolling out 5G to their customers? Well, you know, Alan, the thing about 5G is in some ways a lot of, a lot of what's, fi- what's going to happen in the 5G space is predicated by the strength of the, the current existing 4G networks because, 
a lot of the 5G spectrum that's going to come into the market very soon by the end of this year will essentially be bonded onto the, that 4G network. It'll be combined into the existing 4G network to provide greater capacity on those networks. And that capacity is really key to uh, what telcos like Telstra and Optus and the rest want to do uh, with the 5G mobile network, which is essentially allow them to move data at a cheaper cost. Well, I think you've been reporting that uh, retailers and others have been a bit resistant to 5G because they think it's going to cost more. Isn't that going to cost more? Well, well, I mean, the thing is, uh, Alan, you know, the, the first use cases of 5G are very much going to be in that enterprise space. You know, it'll be services being sold to businesses. Now, a lot of businesses actually already have those services, you know, such as, for example, payments, which actually run on the 4G networks. So the challenge here is how do you coax them to say that, look, you know, the, the move from 4G to 5G actually benefits them in a real meaningful way. And that's the challenge for all of the carriers right now. And one of the reasons why uh, someone like Telstra would be pushing this idea of 5G so hard, because right now we're in that early phase where you want to drive adoption and you want to tell business customers who are going to be the first to experience the benefits of 5G that, look, this will make a big difference in how you're running your business today to how you want to run it three years from now or five years from now. Yeah, but Supra, how will it uh, – well, I mean, what difference will it make? Why, why, why would anyone change to 5G? How, what will be better about it? Well, Alan, the secret sauce to 5G really is this thing called latency, which is basically the time taken for a signal to move from one device to another or from your tower to your device, your mobile tower to the device that you have. And that becomes really, really critical in a 5G environment because what happens is in today's 4G LTE network, there's a certain level of lag that takes that happens for a signal to move from a mobile tower to your device. But in 5G, what we're talking about, that extra latency, what that means is we're talking about milliseconds. That latency, that lag, and the time taken for the signal to move can be as short as a millisecond. And that means a lot when you're trying to deliver real-time services to your customers. So, for example, if you're a miner and you're using drones to do survey you're using perhaps automated vehicles uh, to transport your, 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 your mineral. Um, if you are using it to you know, do digging, actual digging and physical digging in your mine site, having that latency of one millisecond means you can really have real-time visibility on what you're doing. And this all leads to you know, greater productivity, greater efficiency, and that's why 5G becomes important to businesses because it gives you an almost real-time ability to monitor things or to deliver a service. Right. So, and you think that this will make a a, a big difference to business? I mean, to, to the to the point where uh, businesses generally will take it up. I mean, I, it doesn't sound like the latency we've got at the moment with 4G isn't really an issue for consumers, is it? It's not so much for consumers, but, you know, we're talking about, you know, the kind of use. And that's where the big issue is right now, because we're so early in this stage here. We're waiting for the use cases to evolve 
for it to make sense for businesses. So a lot of it obviously comes down to what kind of customer experience businesses want to do. So there's one element in that. I mean, an example could be, for example, utilities. In a 5G world, utilities could now provide smart meters or, uh, you know, make it almost ubiquitous, right? And have it on every home. And having a low latency environment allows them to provide greater efficiency when it comes to capacity management, for example, right? Now, the flow on effect of that to a consumer over time could be that maybe they, they get cheaper power or maybe they get to get a better understanding of how they're using their power. Now, we have that ability now, but 5G has the potential to provide even more granularity to it, you know, an even greater level of clarity, which allows, you know, lots of different new business models to evolve. But those business models are, you know, I mean, it's up to the businesses to obviously develop them now while the 5G networks are put together. And speaking of caring, it's Andrea Bocelli's 60th on Saturday. Happy birthday, Andrea. Happily, it's not time to say goodbye to Andrea. And that's all from me this week. Have a great week. I'll talk to you next week.